0: What is population health?
1: Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities?
0: Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science, covers these topics and more. Join us. Aresha Martinez-Carroso from the University of Chicago.
1: Mike Esposito from Washington University in St. Louis, Daryl Hudson also from Washington University in St. Louis, twice a month as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sick Individual Sick Populations, a podcast from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. So we have been talking to a lot of really interesting folks about their work and their career trajectories. And you all have gotten to know each of the hosts a little bit, but we realized we have never really dug deep to learn more about each of our hosts, what we work on, where we come from, how our careers have unfolded. And so we are going to do a few special episodes interviewing the, uh, the, co- the host, interviewing their fellow hosts, and chatting a little bit more about each other's work. So first up, we have our uh, our leader, our fearless leader, Daryl Hudson, who we will be interviewing to kick us off. Um, Daryl, welcome to the podcast.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. I don't, I don't think about myself as the leader of anything, but <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs>
0: Okay, this is going to be fun because I think we like gab so much, uh, but we never really get to talk about each other. And I'm excited to start with Daryl because I feel like you're the quietest of the three of us. And so now you have, I feel like we have you on the hot seat, so I think it should be fun (laughs) for us. (laughs)
2: I'll try not to disappoint.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, so I guess let's start with the question that we're not supposed to ask but we are going to tell us where you're from however you define that and what is your origin story if you were a superhero how would you describe yourself
1: we're not supposed to ask people where they're from is that we're not thing? supposed
0: to ask people where they're from you know it's like that complicated
1: <laughs> oh man i've been messing up in big ways just this week okay sorry sorry
2: um so where am i from i am um, i can combine that with my <laughs> story. So. I was born in the basement of my grandmother's house in Detroit, Michigan. Um, And that's kind of where I always think about my life beginning. So I think about um, being on the West side of Detroit and I would say adversity is the, the key word to childhood. I know I don't display that, I don't talk about it a lot. I don't look like it anymore, but there's a lot of adversity growing up, um, coming of age, in a city that was, it often felt like we were going through like a one city recession. Mm -hmm. It was like, people were peeking in on Detroit, like, oh my gosh, look how crazy things are there. Um, And then it took, you know, like a decade more for it to catch up with the rest of the country. So it was a really challenging kind of interpersonal place to grow up, um, community factors and whatnot. but I think that's what sparked my interest in health inequities because you could see them on display um, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, etc. cetera. We um, also had some, some great social networks, um, people in my family who foster resilience and create opportunities for me. So it certainly wasn't all bad either. Um, so I definitely had some gems of memories growing up. Um, and my grandmother again I was born in her house and so she she essentially raised me until I was about almost 10. And so um you know I had an aunt in Atlanta we were just talking about Atlanta before we started mm-hmm. um I ended up going to Morehouse for, for undergrad so that used to be my old stomping ground and so um I think that was important for me too. Um I had a great uncle who went to Morehouse and graduated from there in 1929. Um wow. And so the family legacy of going to that place, and he also left, left the trust fund for us to go to school, so I wouldn't have been able to. Wow. To, yeah. uh, if not for that. Um, so a lot of the things that we study, you know, in terms of risk and resilience, wealth and assets, I've experienced in my own life. So mm-hmm. a lot of these things, you know, take on an additional with that when I look at it um, in my analyses.
0: Wow. So if we were to go back to like the birth records, and try to like find you, you would be like the one that was like the birth happened, not in a hospital, you know, happened at home, (laughs) you know?
2: That actually ended up being a real pain in the ass for me as I got older, because Uh, I didn't have like basic documentation for a long mm -hmm. time. So like going to get a license, for instance, um, was challenging. (laughs) I didn't have like a birth certificate. Mm -hmm. so I had to file I ended up filing the paperwork myself when I was like 16 or so
0: uh,
2: to get like a birth certificate and stuff like that um and so that ended up being like an administrative
1: challenge but yeah I'm I'm official on papers now
0: yeah
1: wow yeah that's a a really interesting thing because I think you know sometimes you think about those sorts of kind of gaps and kind of like kind of like you know care for people gaps and kind of like kind of like records for folks as like existing way back in the past but it's like no it's still still alive and well in a lot of ways reminds me of like a family friend that we had um um and his kind of like uncles and aunts they didn't have names they were just brother and sister right because they just grew up on the farm and like nobody ever was like kind of recorded and kind of like anything about yeah. them there's no like you know, state interference and any of that is just, yeah, it's a very different world. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't that long ago for me, but
2: yeah, <laughs> we we're on, on a farm. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, right
1: in Detroit. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> um, you started talking a little bit about how a lot of your life history intersects with a lot of what we do, but can you talk? a little more specifically about how you got into public health, you know, why you thought being, an academ- ade- being in academia was a good idea, and like how that unfolded for you?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think like many people in public health, I kind of fell into it. Like if I had to talk to like my five or six or seven-year-old me, I wouldn't have known what public health was. And um, so, I started out as a psychology major in college. Um, So I ended up doing, I thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. I thought I wanted to be the Black Fraser Crane. Um, So (laughs) that was my goal in life at that point, was to talk to people about mental health, to destigmatize mental health and mental health services. I wanted to um, help people who, at least in my own experience, within my own social networking, thinking more broadly um, and not having the right words and descriptors then I was just like people are struggling with their mental health but they don't seem to have any connection to services and maybe it's because there's not enough people who practice in, in the field who look like them so they have and understand their experiences so that's what I wanted to do um but I kind of fell into public health for two things so one, um, I had a colleague who had told me about a uh, postback opportunity at the NIH, and at the time I was thinking about taking a gap year um, right after undergrad, and I was like, "Huh, that seems interesting." So I applied on a whim, mm. and I was selected. So I spent a year at the National Institute on Drug Abuse in Baltimore, um, right after, and so. That kind of helped transition me to public health, especially since we were at a Johns Hopkins campus where we at Hopkins Bayview um, doing the work. And so that combination with doing research in undergrad too, that was public health related work, but I didn't really know it was public health related work at the mm-hmm. time. Um, so we were studying like in a very rudimentary way, um, reactivity to stress. so cardiovascular reactivity to Uh, especially stress that's related to race and racism. And so um, very rudimentary sorts of measures and how we were able to do it, but it got my feet wet into research and also broadened my perspective. So the combination of the research that we were doing in undergrad, plus the um, experience at NIH kind of pushed me towards public health because I thought, wow, well, there's broader considerations. There's multiple levels of influence and intervention of course, I didn't have that terminology at the time, but that's what I was really grasping <laughs> for. And so that's what what made me um, kind of switch into public
1: health. Totally. Um, yeah, so I guess like in thinking about like your long and illustrious career from those very, very humble origins to uh, kind of the esteemed professor that you are now, um, like what's been a, your proudest moment or some of your proudest moments like over, over the course of been doing this?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. I think being a professor is the perfect job for me. Mm. I couldn't, could never imagine doing this when I was a kid. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. have a conception of it. Um, even when I started my PhD program, I wasn't really sure if academia was the right fit. For me, um but like I said before, it's f- at least for for me, it's the perfect pathway. Um, and so, in terms of proud moments, I would say two things. One, every day, so I feel like I'm in approval position. Um, my life goal for a long period of my my life was to avoid assembling cars for a living. So mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. want to assemble cars like. We were in a Ford family, um, so most of our, our folks worked for Ford. A lot of folks worked for Chrysler or GM and all the other industries that supported the automobile industry, so steel mills and all that type of stuff. Very blue collar, very working class, um, and that's what Detroit was built on. But I knew I didn't want to do that, and so every day that I'm not assembling cars, <laughs> the win for me, and that's what. Uh-huh. Oh, I think about folks back home who were in similar situations or even better situations mm-hmm. um, who are not here and whose voices are not represented. So I take that very seriously and try to make sure that I add that perspective in spaces that oftentimes there's no one like me in those spaces. Yeah. Um, so it's pressure, but it's also an opportunity and a privilege. So um, I do take that very seriously. I try to make sure that I instill that into the students that I see as well. So um I would say the proudest moment um I mean aside from like hearing people who are who are junior scholars, postdocs or students coming up to me and being like, wow you're Daryl Hudson. I'm <laughs> like, yeah I am like <laughs> it's just you know me. me? Yeah. Um, so it's still hard for me to wrap my mind around people reading my work, citing my work. Um, you know, referencing things that I found, validating things that, that I explored. Um, so that's a really, you know, and I know that's very ego driven, but I'm a human being. So that's that's a, that's a really neat feeling. Um, and I would say another thing that I, I really enjoyed was I had a conference a couple of years ago, back when we can meet in person, freely and, and not have to worry about anything. Um, I, th- I think it was 2019, yeah, March of 2019. And we brought together all these scholars from across the country and we had a conference that focused on race and it was a beautiful interdisciplinary conference. And that was really cool. It was, it was a lot to learn, a lot of networking. So and and I got a chance to to curate that experience. So um yeah, that was probably one of the the highlights of my career so
1: far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on the um, I haven't told you this yet, but I had some of the students read your stuff recently in class on vigilance and kind of uh health benefits from mobility absolutely loved it I had them read some of my stuff later and they didn't react the same way so (laughs) I'm still waiting for that feeling to happen people be like man this is great work um but yeah like it's it's great work all across the board so I'm not surprised that you get that reaction yeah
0: for sure um So you are, you know, you're tenured, you've like hashtag made it, at least in our book. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what people, you know, you can go to your like Google Scholar and you can see and like see the grants you've gotten and the papers you've written. But I feel like people don't talk enough about the challenges, the hard stuff, like the grit through it to make it, like when you fall flat on your face when a study didn't work. So can you talk a little bit about some of the biggest challenges or hard lessons that you had to learn throughout your your career um, and like how you stuck it, you know?
2: Yeah, sure, I think that's a really important question. And um, that's the advice that I always give to students at all levels, it's not how smart you are. I certainly don't have the highest level of aptitude to be doing what I'm doing, Um, but it's really about your resilience. So how you bounce back from failure or defeat and, and how do you take into account harsh criticism sometimes? Um, so that, that's what it's really all about is how, how you get back up. Um, so that being said, I would say one of the frustrating things is whether any of this stuff matters. So you mentioned like the Google Scholar page, mm-hmm. funding record, et cetera, even having tenure mm-hmm. and getting advanced to different levels and having different leadership opportunities. I always wonder: does any of this stuff matter? Um, and are we moving the needle and, you know, start to have some, um, I don't know, some survivor's remorse sometimes mm-hmm. about the things that I've experienced, especially within my own family, uh, and then relative to where I am now and essentially being in a pretty stable position, but the stability is built off of like people's poor experiences in this life. Um, so that's a, that's a day-to-day, you know, kind of frustration and challenge and I don't have a, a great answer for what to do about it um, I think the other hard lesson for me to learn has been um you know how do you trust different colleagues everyone's not worthy of your trust mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got some horror stories about um you know folks who are not in it they're not in the 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 academic game if you will for the betterment of everyone. They're in there for personal gain, quite frankly. And so I think it's challenging the more junior you are and you see people who have power or they promise you things, advancement, et cetera. Um, you know, it's difficult to discern folks who are in it for the right reasons versus those who are not, um, especially when you're new and you don't have your networks as well established. So I would say that's the other thing is just, you know, the, the underside of it. And we put so much pressure on people to produce sometimes I think people make decisions that they might regret later on just because of the pressure and they see if they can gobble up someone's idea or put their name on something or whatever the case might be we all have these stories so I think that's just another part of it um so I would say that's the other thing that's been a hard lesson for me to learn so far for sure
1: Definitely. Yeah. And that's a hard lesson that um am and I are still <laughs> learning actively, so like- learning on the fly right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, OK, so kind of shift gears just a little bit. Like, what are you kind of currently working on? What's keeping you uh, kind of busy uh, nowadays? Fill we'll some on that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've got a
2: bunch of different lines of work. I'm still trying to figure out what I am. Um <laughs> IPHS has been great for that because I've never really exactly figured out who I am and what meetings should I be attending, mm-hmm. all that. Um, so I would say right now, my two main projects, one of them, like you mentioned, Mike, um, is related to social mobility. So mental and physical health costs of upper social mobility. So I have a Russell Sage and Gates Foundation mm-hmm. to do an investigation of that. So we're doing a mixed method study. So, we collected survey data last year and we're collecting interview data this year to figure out whether or not people do experience cost of mobility. So, the idea is that are there kind of psychosocial experiences, stressors that could potentially undermine the benefits of human capital investment, like investing in education and getting a job and playing by the rules? Does that actually matter for? people's health and population health and reduction of health inequities and you know long story short yeah that helps but there's still gaps for sure and mm-hmm. my work can help to illustrate some of the um, their shortcomings there the other project that I'm, I'm working on which is seemingly completely unrelated but it all fits together in my, my head is looking at um, recruiting figuring out how what new ways to recruit, black folks into Alzheimer's studies. And not just that, but to create a new cohort to do that work and to um, investigate um, some preclinical markers of Alzheimer's disease among black Americans. The way that fits with me is I've always been very interested in depression among black people and depression and um, not just Alzheimer's but related dementias have a lot of stigma. People don't wanna talk about it a lot. And again, if we can get people screened and we can have a better sense of what the data look like for black americans we will probably be better off in terms of prevention standpoint so those are things that i'm currently working on that gobble up a lot of time i have a couple other projects and there's always revised and resubmits on the desk Uh (laughs) those are things that i have in the pipeline right
1: now cool a lot
0: of good work
1: are you working with the well? N- whatever, no one needs to hear that conversation. We—that's <laughs> <there's laughs> the very washy particular, and literally no one would care but you and I. So well, we could save that for offline. No problem.
0: Um. So, what advice do you think you would give to first-year doctoral student you, or perhaps first-year college student you? You know, any maybe not regrets. Maybe that's not the right word, but you know, looking back.
2: Yeah. Um, I would probably say two things, and they, they seem diametrically opposed, but in my mind, where I'm at now, it makes sense. Um, I would tell myself, have more fun, be more excellent. Um, <laughs> and so I took myself so seriously um, <laughs> when I was in college. Um, and I had a, I felt like I had a great deal of pressure on my shoulders to perform and to not let my family down and all that so I wish I had greater confidence that I could just be me and I would perform and I would be um as excellent as I'm supposed to be and I think that I would have had more fun as a result of that because you know people always ask me about going to school in Atlanta and going to Morehouse and people always have these crazy wild experiences and I was like I couldn't tell you because I was in the (laughs) research laboratory or I was working all the time. so I wish I had more fun and also, like I said, be more excellent. So um, you know, just figuring out ways to study and, you know, knowing how better now to study and how to build relationships with professors outside of classrooms and stuff like that. I think those things will all improve my my record, but also would have had a lot more fun. So mm-hmm. that would be kind of dangerous. I don't think I would want to go back to being. 18 years old with the knowledge that I have right now, that would not be, that would not be a good thing. Sure. (laughs) So funny,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, Can I ask, so I I guess as a follow up in the time we have left, I'm, you know, one of the privileges and honors of doing this podcast is to be able to do it like two black men in a field that is dominated by women or led by like white men. So I'm just like curious, how you think like your experience as, like being both black and the man and the intersectionalities of both have like shaped your work and like how you've moved through the space yeah and like i don't know have you been intentional have you just been like going through it have you been had to be careful like i don't know I'm, maybe that's like a loaded question but yeah yeah
2: no it's a great you know. question i mean it's all of the above i'm very conscious of being a black man in these spaces um from graduate school and beyond oftentimes i'm the only one Mm -hmm. so that that is you know it can be isolated for sure um i think that also you know you talked about intersectionality not coming from a great deal of means so i don't have like the same relationship power and prestige that other men might have and so Mm -hmm. um, you know it's always been peculiar to me especially being in spaces with you know, "quote unquote" disparity scholars. You know, always feels like we're like the wine and cheese health disparities researchers, mm-hmm. literally having like some fancy French wine and some cheese I can't pronounce, <laughs> discussing people like me. And I'm standing right there, yeah, yeah, and yeah. what I'm like yeah. about. But at the same time, I don't want people to ask me what I'm thinking about because I don't want to be put on the spot.
1: Yeah, so yeah. you kind feel of
2: conflicted. Um, So I've always been, I remember being in grad school and some of my friends and colleagues, peers would be like really upset about things that people would say in class. Oh my gosh, I can't believe someone said something so insensitive. I'd be like, well, you know, like I want to hear what people have to say. Like I want to, you know, have a a safe space so people can express what they think. And you can have a meaningful dialogue and and try to, you know, hopefully nudge them and the correct direction, and mm-hmm. so um, yeah, there's not a moment that I don't think about my visibility. It's it's weird. It's like being hyper visible and invisible at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. can be ignored. That's another thing that always fascinated me is that if I didn't wear my what I call my NTBG uniform, my non-threatening black guy uniform, mm-hmm. then people will walk right past me. Um, mm-hmm. Even if people have been in meetings with me sat in classrooms with me, et cetera. I, if I was on a bus or airplane, airport, um, I became invisible. It's was like people didn't notice me. Um, but at the same time, if I'm in a place that I'm not supposed to be, um, I can be hyper-visible. So people will say, what are you doing here? And let me see your credentials to make sure you belong in this space. So it's, um, it's still unfolding. I will have a great answer there, but it's something I think about all the time, I think. The more and more inspired inspiration I gained from other black men in these spaces also helps think about how to present myself. Um, so I've had some really great mentorship um, you know I think one of the benefits of being at Michigan, for example, was that there was leadership at every level, um, from people in doctoral programs, postdocs to junior professors. Mm-hmm. To and level on up to higher level administrators so having people like James Jackson walking around just being James Jackson <laughs> and um, you know just seeing how respected he was um, you know other folks like Robert Taylor and you know really influential leaders who were really humble and really approachable really cared about mentorship really cared about the next generation so I've always tried to like emulate as poorly as I as I do that tried to emulate what what those folks have, have patterned and uh, modeled out to
1: until you get onto the other side of being a professor, I don't think I realize or appreciate it just like the just how nuts it was that kind of like Robert Linda kind of like chatters, right? Like would it spend so much time trying to walk us through some of these things, right? It's like, oh wait, like seeing how busy they are in their lives and like still extending that over but then also kind of like not having that insight that they had where it's like, that is the only way that you're yeah. gonna of kind of survive these spaces, right? It's, yeah. Yeah, it's um, really, really important. I appreciate Daryl. I know that you've kind of taken on that role in some ways for me too. So I can say it publicly, thank you for, um, mm-hmm. you know, occupying that and making that time in the same way um, for me and, you know, other kind of like, uh, kind of black, uh, kind of male scholars, um, for sure. Yeah, I appreciate that, yeah. So cool. So great. To hear.
2: We're
0: living the dream, Daryl, for all of us, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, but also I think you're such a real person that it's like cool to see such real, you know, you see these like people who make it get tenure doing great and you're just like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> they don't seem like real people, but you're hundred mm-hmm. percent a real person. Okay. Last fun question to close us off. What is something that people don't know about quirky <laughs> fun Secret about
2: Professor Daryl Hudson. Uh, there's a lot of things about me. I would say I'm a multi-layered personality for sure. I'm a true Gemini. Um, <laughs> like a lot of people don't know, I can dance. I can dance really well.
0: <laughs> okay.
2: I'm music, so I listen to all sorts of types of music and go to all sorts of different types of concerts. Um. I can't break breakdance, though, so don't get your hopes up there. <laughs> There's move to it. Um, yeah, those are some of the things that I would say are fun about me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very funny, too, so if people get, <laughs> know me. It's it's not great humor, though. It's always humor at the expense of others, so uh, Is there <laughs> any other type of humor? <laughs> Being in meetings and keeping a very straight face and joking the entire time and getting people next to me in trouble so yeah you know. <laughs> <laughs> cool. all
0: right well it was so fun chatting and getting to know you and your work a little bit more and i think you're up next mike so we'll see you all at the oh. next podcast episode yeah no, no you're gonna be on the hot seat too um but thank you all for joining in and listening and catch us on the next episode thanks daryl